The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us for a look at the markets and companies in the news. Lauren is feeling a little under the weather today, so you're stuck with me. My guests are Barron's senior writer, Al Root, and the institutional views, Andy Addison. And I hope that they can explain why stocks have suddenly hit a wall and why we have all these companies doing things I'm not sure I quite understand. So we've got a bunch of earnings coming, and of course, we have the Fed. So let's get to it. Andy and Al, welcome to Barron's Live. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Oh, man, Andy, I waited for you, and then we both did it together. Hi, this is Al. Thanks, Ben. So, Andy, in some circles, technical analysis get, has a bad reputation. Um, I've even seen it described as voodoo magic. But as a former trader, I found it essential as a tool for identifying trading opportunities and for managing risk. What do you think the role of technical analysis should be, and, and why do you think it does get a bad reputation? Uh, well, for a th- thanks so much for having me. I think that it's that it's very important. One of the things that I've learned over the years, and most especially uh, in my 10 years at Fidelity, was that uh, it's one of the three legs of the tripod. And the three legs are fundamental, quant, and, and technical. And, fun, and investors, professional, individual, use some combination of, of those three. And some use just one and some use all and, and each, each group of investors weights, weights them differently. Uh, I think that the reason why it's, it's gotten uh, a bad rep, rap is that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's significantly different, different from the others. And, and I, I say that because certainly when we look at fundamental analysis, it's, uh, it's uh, earnings, it's revenues, it's, it's, um, earnings models, uh, cash flow models, uh, and uh, book value, et cetera, and the standard tools that are, that are taught in, uh, in, in, in finance and co- finance courses, uh, at the undergraduate and graduate level. And then of course, the, the quants have their, uh, computer models in which they weight a variety of, of indicators diff- uh, with, with different weights and, and different indicators amongst the various quant analysts. And technical analysis, I think, has always been viewed as, um, in, in the past, as kind of hocus pocus or, or, or um, black magic, uh, and, and I don't, or I should say, white white magic. But put whatever color you want there, magic. Uh, be, but what it what it does that I think is very helpful is it just adds, as you were saying, Ben. One of the things that that you found is that it adds. It adds a layer of a layer of protection because one of the things that I've learned over my almost 50 years in the business is that it can warn you of trouble brewing before the reasons for the trouble brewing become apparent from fundamental analysis. Right. Uh, And at the same time, it can alert you to something that's getting ready to bloom or is just beginning to bloom when the fundamentals don't yet seem obvious. But 
What's most important, I believe, is that fundamentals always work in the end. But it's from it's it's the journey from the beginning to the end where the technicals can really provide some some value added. And there's a variety of different opinions as to um, what what the trend of the next move is or whether it's a, a security is bullish or bearish uh, amongst technical analysts, just as there is amongst fundamental analysts. So. I, I think that uh, if, if investors kind of keep that in mind, that they might have a little bit more of an open mind. But as I say, the longer that I've been in the business, the the more important it is for my analysis to keep a, um, a reading of the pulse of what the fundamentals are. And then mm -hmm. from what the technicals are suggesting, try to try to work into a framework of what the fundamentals are that the, that the charts are uh, are suggesting. Got it. Um, well, you know, that's a great way of describing it. And so with that settled, let's let's talk about this market. Um, we had this great run in November, made back, uh, you know, the losses uh, from that uh, bit of a correction that we had uh, over the summer into the uh, early fall. But the S&P right now seems stuck around 4,600. Um, I was wondering, what's the attraction of that level? And how does this kind of sideways trading we have right now get resolved? Well, it's that that's a fascinating question. 4,600 is, is very important um, magnetic attraction area in my work for a couple of reasons. If we fast backward and go back to the what so far has been the all time high that was that was reached in November and December of, of 21, the the bottom of that topping range that was just over 4,800 comes in at 4,600 and when you look, when we look at the initial decline off that, off that uh, high in, uh, it, actually the first week of January, I said December, excuse me, early January, that was just around 4820. The initial decline took it down to almost 4100, and that initial bounce off that initial low went to exactly 4600. And then we, of course, went down to the October low of last year, down around 3500 ran right back up to 4,600. But this time, what, what's noteworthy was that we, uh, we pulled back less, we gave back less than half of the gain. So if you, so if you put in round numbers, we went from 3,500 to 4,600 and only pulled back to uh, 4,100. So we gave back less than half, the S&P forfeited less than half of its gains and now ran right back up to 4,600. What I think, could be could very well be the surprise is that as long as the S&P can hold 4500 if it takes out 4650 then my work projects that it could that it would move very quickly to 5000 and uh, that's something that probably isn't consensus thinking but that's not a reason to expect it to happen but in looking at the technicals I mean, I'm looking at this chart pattern here and we have almost a, a two year period. So if you can visualize a horizontal line at 4,600 and an upsloping line from 3,500, we have the makings of what looks to be almost a two year base. So if 4,650 is taken out, there could be uh, a lot of room on the upside uh, in the S&P very quickly. But yeah, I mean, it's 45 
But if 4,500 is taken out, if the S&P can't hold 4,500 and breaks that, then, then this is going to become either something a lot more toppy and we're going to be stuck for a lot longer between you know, roughly 4,000 and uh, 4,200 and 4,600, or it, it could turn into you know, more, more substance on the downside. But 4,500 is really the level to, wa to watch as is 4,650 in my opinion. Yeah, that, that 5,000 is so interesting just because, you know, the, I think most of the bullish uh, analysts on Wall Street uh, or the strategists are predicting 5,000 for the end of next year, or maybe 5,100. Um, and so to see it get there, um, you know, quickly, maybe 11 months beforehand would be uh, pretty exciting. Um, Al, yeah, I want to break. 4,500, because if we hold 4,500 and yeah. break it, then then it suggests a very rapid, a very rapid move. And I, and I could see it potentially getting as high as 5,200. Remember, going back to the all-time high between November of 21 and January of 22, uh, the S&P spent very little time there. So uh, whereas now it's it's spent two years in, the, in this base. So while assuming it, if, if it were to hurdle 4,650, it could very well stall at 4,800 for a while, but there's not a lot of supply there because the market didn't trade excessive amounts of volume there, nor did it spend a lot of time trading in that 4,800 area. Got it. Okay. So Al, let's bring you into this conversation. The Fed meets this week and with its decision due Wednesday at 2 PM, what's expected to happen? Uh, so uh, no more hikes. Uh, and, you know, we can uh, check Fed futures and you can do calculations uh, based on all of those. And so we have no more hikes. This is what uh, people people have baked in. And not only uh, no more hikes, people expect cuts by May 2024. The uh, Fed funds rates at about five and a half percent. And uh, the Fed funds curve implies it'll be about four and a half percent by the end of 2025. Uh, excuse me, 2024. What year are we? I keep forgetting what year we are. We're in I've 2023. Already, I've already mentally gone to 2024. Um, so in about a year, uh, people are pricing in like four cuts. So, you know, I like to say we're in the portion of the cycle where bad news is good news. So, you know, cuts and weakening inflation and weakening labor markets, you know, this is what will drive the cuts. But that's what we want. Uh, so right now, everything's as it should be. Uh, we'll see what happens when we get inflation and things like that this week. But no hike, uh, no cut this week, uh, and with language that will give people uh, the idea that cuts will start in the middle of next year. That's what the base expectation is. And Andy, what do you think of the, the outlook for the Fed is now? I think, well, I, th I think the, I think I'm going to try to separate what I think they should do and what, yeah. and what, the, and what, and what the Fed is thinking. I think that the language coming out of this week's meeting is going to be is going to be very important because certainly we have seen um, significant number of, of signs or evidence pointing to you know inflation has slowed. The Fed is certainly concerned about uh, how 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 significant or how long lasting the, the slowing and the inflation we've seen thus far has been. Also. Uh, we saw the unemployment rate actually dip in, in last week's report, um, perhaps more than more than expected. And I think in the absence of um, in the unemployment rate rising, I think that is likely to tip the Fed's hand and not have them talk 
too dovishly at you know at this meeting because it's we certainly haven't seen uh, any kind of meaningful Fed easing when we've had an unemployment rate of three and a half percent, and we still are above their desired two per two percent uh, annual target. Yeah, it'd be but, pretty novel. Yeah, it, it is. But but then um, if if you look at at it from a monetarist point of view, the the money supply has been contracting uh, at at one of the greatest rates uh, in in decades, and that's a and that's a very good leading indicator, especially. And I'm putting in a plug for technical analysis. If you uh, if, if you look at the charts of the various price indices, it was one of the things that you know, alerted me that we were going to be seeing a, a big jump in inflation uh, post uh, post COVID uh, COVID low. But now we're seeing you know the reverse where we've had this big drop in the money supply, and so putting putting it all together. I think the Fed is still going to be hesitant about uh, about talking uh, dovishly at, at this meeting, but but they they will be cutting next year. But um, but I think they're going to want to see the unemployment rate start to tick back up before they actually pull the plug. Well, you both mentioned uh, inflation. We're getting CPI uh, this week. Um, Al, what's the forecast there? Uh, so forecast, we get it tomorrow. We have uh, 0% month over month, 3.1% year over year. Uh, remember, we had 3.2% in October or the uh, November reading that told us what happened in October. And uh, so, the you know, it, it goes along right with what we've just been talking about. The expectation is for a continued moderation. Uh, faster moderation is probably fine. Uh, any sort of rebound in inflation. Uh, would be seen as a net negative uh, and that's what we're all looking for so we're looking for continued slowdown in uh, consumer prices uh, month over or year over year and in in line with the recent trends remember we we peaked at almost like nine percent uh, I guess I don't know if that was 22 or 21 but nine uh, percent year over year growth in consumer prices so we're a long way away from that which is good and so how much should we be worried about the, the fact that core CPI is expected to rise 0.3% month over month? That'd be up from 2.2% uh, month over month and will remain uh, stable at 4% or is expected to remain stable at 4% year over year. Um, it, does this kind of disconnect between slowing overall inflation, but maybe stagnating kind of uh, core? Does that matter? Uh, oh, man. Do I think it matters? No, but I tend to uh, like to poke fun at our economist colleagues that like to adjust numbers, much like uh, Wall Street analysts like to adjust numbers. So outside of everything you buy or impacts your life, like food and energy, uh, inflation is running at one rate. And of course, including everything you buy, it's running at another rate. I prefer to uh, think about my life paycheck to paycheck. So I care about the whole thing. <laughs> Um, yeah, and food and energy are probably our two uh, largest uh, expenses uh, outside of uh, maybe our rent and uh, mortgages and whatnot. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, you know, all of the numbers will matter. And and actually, I would like to hear Andy's view on this. We will build a narrative about how the stock market trades after we get the numbers. Right. Um, however, headline moderation is probably what people want to see and expect. And then if something goes haywire, we'll start looking at core and things like that. And Andy, what are your thoughts on uh, inflation, both uh, from a technical analysis, but also uh, the fundamental side of things? 
Well, um, I just I just pulled up a chart of uh, both uh, CPI year over year as well as CPI X X food and energy, and um, I, I had written um, about six months ago that I, that I thought that the, the CPI X year over year would find support at three and a half to four percent, and now what we have is a, a very oversold levels of momentum, which at current levels are almost as oversold as they were back in uh, the, the, the COVID low when, when the core CPI got down to about 1.2%. So momentum is almost as oversold as it, as it was there. Uh, now, that's not enough to, to say that we're bottoming because uh, just because momentum is oversold doesn't mean that the price of a security or whether it's an economic indicator like the CPI can't, can't go lower. But what we need to see would be less over, see that momentum is becoming less oversold, uh, but we haven't, we haven't seen, seen that yet. And, and also we need to see that, that the actual level of CPI is, is stabilizing. But it's, it's coming into, as I say, 4% is the upper part of support and it goes down to 3.5%. Um, and then there's, of course, even there's an absolutely formidable support down at 3% because that, that marks the level of the top of what was about a 20-year base in core CPI at 3%. So with the upper part of, of support range and the closer you get to 3.5%, percent the more you know the more the more significant the more significant it is um, but fundamentally uh, with the uh, with the uh, the rent and the housing indicator that the Fed uses which is a lagging indicator to what's going on in the real world uh, those numbers are now coming down more more quickly the shelter numbers and that's something that's going to be pushing down uh, the various price at, uh, the, the CPI index and then two, um, and looking at, as Al mentioned, I'm mentioning uh, gas or oil prices, we've seen quite a drop there. So, so I think we're going to be seeing fundamentally as well as technically um, a move down in the next in the next couple of month readings, uh, year over year ex food and energy um, down to three and a half percent. I don't think we're going to go below three, but uh, but I, I think we could get down to three and a half. All right. Um, well, it'd be great to see. Um, so if this were Sprockets on the old Saturday Night Live, it would be time to dance. Uh, but this is Barron's Live, and this is when we turn to earnings. It's a quiet week. Um, there's there are just a few companies with some unusual quarters that are reporting. Al, let's start with Oracle. What's expected? Yep. Oracle, uh, for those who've been on these calls with me, I, I try to basically set the scene and point out that um, you know quarters are not years or or even trends right you just uh, it's it's sort of about expectations and meeting or beating expectations and so trades uh, at uh, oracle trades at 19 times calendar 2024 earnings uh, if uh, we go back a quarter it got crushed um, when uh, sales guidance uh, was a little light now their cloud business grew 30 percent year over year last quarter 
but again, overall, uh, things weren't quite up to expectations. I wish uh, my sales were up 30% and that would be a big disappointment. So, you know, I think the stock fell double digits, uh, 12 or 13% sticks in my head after last quarter, but shares are still up 40% over the last 12 months. So you have a stock here with a wonky quarter last time, trades it uh, uh, an above market multiple, but not a wild multiple. Uh, so what you need is you need um, you need uh, a solid quarter uh, with solid guidance and then everything is fine. Uh, they do typically guide sales and, and earnings. Um, echoing. Sales and earnings uh, one quarter out. So we'll see what they do. Andy, uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on what the chart looks like? Uh, let's see. Let's take a let's take a look at Oracle. Um, whoops. Uh, okay. Sorry, I don't have this one off the top of my head. I haven't followed it in a, in a couple of months. Um, okay, here we go. There's there's a right now. It's in it's in the middle of a trading range between about 100 and 100 uh, 100 115. Uh, I formed um, a big double top up around one around 128 130. Because it had that very big reversal after their September earnings came out, uh, because the stock had run up sharply in anticipation of that, it had that huge reversal. So right now, it's it seems like it's pretty well locked between uh, 100 and a and 100 120. Uh, when when I look at it on a on a relative basis, uh, how it's done versus well, let's see, if we look at it versus uh, the S and P 500. I like to look at things versus the equal weight. Uh, so if we look at it versus an equal weighted S&P 500 chart, um, it's still right up at the top of top of its uh, recent range, but its its relative strength has actually gone sideways. It's it's basically unchanged versus the market over the last over the last six months. Mm -hmm. So um, and and it's and the recent high of resistance where where it got uh, in August before the September uh, negative earnings surprise. There's a lot of resistance there, so I think that most of the gains in in Oracle uh, are probably are over for a while, and I think that there are better opportunities on the long side elsewhere, All even right. in technology. Well, speaking of uh, more technology, we also have Adobe, which has been even stronger than Oracle this year. I think it's up something like 85 percent. Um, Al, that's been getting Al, a big boost from AI. AI. What do you expect? Um, so, um, sim so similarly, similarly, I'm just going to throw this out there. Somebody should probably mute when they're talking. So this means we get so next year, next right? Year, so this is right? their so uh, fiscal fourth quarter. They guided last year 19.2 billion sales. They'll do 19 and four, roughly 19 and four. Last year they guided uh, 1530, $15.30 in adjusted earnings per share. They're going to end up doing 1590. Uh, and what do you get when when estimates move up over the course of the year? You get a stock that's up 80% over the last 12 months. We're at 34 times calendar 2024 earnings. Um, so what do we need? We need growth. We need cloud. We need AI. We need um, uh, positive commentary to keep this thing going. And, you know, just just my same sort of theme last time, right? This stock is dropped after the last four quarterly prints. Right. So it doesn't always it doesn't always mean that, you know, that's a disaster because, you know, up 80 percent over the last 12 months. If you freaked out every every time they reported earnings, you would have missed a lot. That's the that's the Adobe setup. 
Yeah, that's a very, very true. These things become uh, dip buying opportunities. Andy, are you seeing anything in uh, Adobe that stands Adobe out to you? you? Well, uh, it's relative strength versus the market. Again, looking at it versus an equal weighted S&P is coming into a significant amount of significant amount of resistance. Uh, it, it's relative strength versus the market actually peaked about three, uh, a little over three years ago, but off the off uh, last year's low, it's had a tremendous move and it's it's doubled uh, the gain in the S and P. So it's it had a huge move to the downside. So coming off the top, it uh, it, it dropped fifty percent versus the market. Now it's uh, it's doubled the market's gain since uh, the October twenty two low, and it's coming into all that uh, uh, res resistance here, and that kind of ties in with the with the price, the price action as as well. Uh, and unlike unlike the uh, the S and P when we were talking about how long that spent trading up at the forty eight hundred area, it just did it for a couple of weeks. Uh, with the with Adobe, uh, Adobe spent uh, over six months basically working uh, working its way between. Uh, 575 and, and 700. So it's just coming into the lower, uh, the midpoint of that re, uh, big resistance area. Volume has been slowing. Momentum has been slowing. So uh, I don't see, I think it's basically limited on the, on, on the upside. I mean, maybe, maybe you get a little bit of a pop, but, but again, I think there are better opportunities uh, elsewhere. And I just mentioned, I think, I, you know, your colleague, Eric Savitz did a great piece on, uh, on technology talking about how strength is likely to, uh, or very likely to work its way into the mid and small cap, um, technologies stocks. And that's where on some individual names, I'm, uh, I'm seeing, uh, some potentially, uh, much more exciting upside potential than in, than in an Oracle or an Adobe. Can you give us a few examples? Uh, well, one, actually, I'll give you one that I actually, I just recommended to my clients last night, which I think has one of the most powerful uh, technical uh, technical chart patterns uh, of any of them. And it's called GitLab. And the ticker is GTLB, Gary, Tom, Larry, Bob. And uh, it's, it's in the software area. Please don't ask me to describe specifically what they do because... I, I'm not able to do that. But what makes it noteworthy is it's just this this past week and just this month emerged from a very big 21-month, uh, almost two-year rounding base. And it's formed uh, on the monthly chart, a huge monthly bullish reversal, meaning that specifically back in May, it undercut its April low. It closed above its April high on a significant increase in volume. And we've seen similar bullish reversals on the weekly chart as, as well. So this one looks very exciting to me. And uh, I think this one could have easily 25 to you know 35% upside in the, next, uh, in the next year. It really looks sensational from a, from a chart point of view. That's a nice gain. Um, okay. um, why don't we take some, listener questions um, as we come in on, uh, we're getting close to being out of time. Um, let's start with this one. Um, how about Deer? Um, Bernard is asking, is Deer a buy now? Al, I know you follow Deer. What do you think? So the, here's, uh, you know, I'll be interested to hear what 
what Andy thinks of Deer. So Deer is one of these uh, machinery companies. Um, they are, are cyclical. Uh, that you typically buy them when PE ratios are high and sell them when PE ratios are low uh, because earnings peak and then uh, farm income falls and commodity prices fall and the price of corn goes down and there's bad weather events and farmers uh, take it on the chin. And uh, that means less uh, sales for uh, tractors and combines and farm implements, all the stuff that deer makes. All right, so that all being said, uh, farm income is falling. Uh, but it's falling from a very high level. So, you know, I, I think the number that sticks in my head is farm income in 24 is expected to be about 140 billion in the U.S. And that'll be like the second best year on record uh, after uh, 2022 or 2023, whatever whatever the uh, year is. But basically, we're falling off a peak. And so what you see is, um, you know, earnings estimates year over year for deer are flat to down. And now the stock is trading at 12, 12 and a half times. So here's what it comes down to. I, I am a deer uh, liker and I'll tell you why. So, you know, some of these discussions for me always devolve into, do I want to own more than, an, do I want a lot of it? Do I want to own none of it? Do I want to own a little of it? I'm definitely in the own some of the deer camp. And I do do believe in, you know, digitization and uh, uh, intelligent farm technology uh, driving price, driving profit margin over the next few years at Deer. So you'll see ups and downs in farm income and things like and things like that. But you know, five years from now, when some of these trends have played out, Deer will be more valuable down the road than it is right now. And you're picking it up at about 12 times earnings again. Uh, that's a, you know could be a peak number. Maybe you're picking it up at you know 15 times normalized earnings or whatever that is. Uh, so I am I'm a fan of Deer. But, you know, it has some headwinds and it's very difficult for stocks to work when earnings estimates or earnings are actually falling year over year. So you're going to have to be a little careful. So I'm putting it, I'm keeping deer right in the middle of my portfolio range. Okay. And Andy, do you have thoughts on deer? Well, I, I, I like, uh, I, I agree with, with Al that uh, you're, going to you're going to have to be patient here. And uh, at least price-wise on deer, it's tried three times to get through the 440, 450 area. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's great support at, at 300. So it's so it's it's in the middle of, of what has been its trading range for the last for the last three years. And uh, I, I I second what Al said about being patient, but uh, you could probably have a little bit here, but if I didn't already own it, I'd be I'd be waiting. Um, I'd be waiting, but I wouldn't be, okay. uh, as I say, I, I wouldn't be adding to it. If yes. I didn't own it, I'd, yeah. I'd be waiting. But if, if I if I owned it here, I'd, I'd probably still be holding it. One, one okay. more thing I want to yeah. add. And this is, we just backed into it almost magically. This is, so I, I spend all my time on deer conference calls and reading research reports. And I'm talking about, well, you know, it's got some headwinds and I like it here, but not as much if it was, you know, a little lower, blah, blah, blah. And, and Andy looked at the chart. And we basically said the chart is telling him everything I just said, almost to a T. So that's that is like if that doesn't drive home that whole idea of why it's a useful tool, I don't even know what is. Yeah, it's a great point now. Um, okay, so Raj and he would like to know your views on the commodity supercycle, particularly. Um, he just he wants to know your views. Do we have a commodity supercycle going on, or is one potentially setting up? Commodity supercycle in general, or or is he interested in, in a in a specific commodity in general? In general. Oh, okay. 
okay. I don't, I don't see that we have one. On, um, we don't have one underway now, but we have, we have that, we have that, let's put it this way. We have that potential. Uh, and I say that because when we came off the COVID low, uh, just taking a look at, for example, uh, uh, the, the FTSE, uh, the CRB uh, index here, uh, or if you look at most of the commodity indexes, you'll see that they, they almost tripled coming off the COVID, COVID low. And they, they stopped exactly at very strong resistance that goes back to 2004. What's going to be critical will be how much further they go, how much further the indices decline. And the most recent lows and and the commodity indices were were in uh, were back in in May, about seven 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 months ago. If they don't undercut that low by very much, uh, or if they hold above it, then it could then we could see um, kind of a basing pattern. But at this point. It's going to take it's going to take a, a, a much more work and longer time to suggest a commodity super cycle. But taking again the, that CRB index and the, I know the ticker is CRY on Bloomberg. I'm not sure what it would be on uh, on the on what uh, on what system that, that you're using. But I would say that certainly if we take if the commodity index or or anyone you look at takes out its high of May of last year, then, then we could see a, a really huge, you know, super cycle in, in, in commodities. But for now, I'd say it's still, in the, it's still in the declining phase. The decline isn't over. We don't have a bottom confirmed, but if we don't undercut meaningfully the, uh, the lows of um, this past May and then stabilize, then we could be setting up for something perhaps towards the end of next year, but it's still very much, I'd say, a manana scenario mm -hmm. where it's, it's there, not a of happening soon. Are there any commodities are that do stand out to you as yeah. being kind of poised for a rally? Well, there, there are two that on which I've been I've been uh, focusing, and, and that's and those are gold and 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 soybeans. And gold gold is one that that uh, that has has a lot of a lot of upside potential. I think of all the commodities, it has potentially, and I underline potentially, uh, the most significant uh, and the greatest upside of, of all. But unfortunately, it's had quite a reversal, and um, which it suffered a week ago Sunday night, where in overnight trading in uh, in the Far East, it traded uh, well over twenty one hundred to twenty one thirty five, and did. Uh, a very big daily reversal, the biggest one we've seen on the charts in, in, in years where it, it exceeded its prior day's high and closed below the prior day's low. Uh, and that produced a big turnaround on the weekly charts also. So right now we're trying to see where the support is going to come in for gold. And uh, initial support in gold comes in uh, right around 1950. And 1950, uh, is an important price point. It's also where it meets the 200-day moving average. And then there's there are other la layers of support at 1935, and uh, which is also important because that's the level to which gold uh, really sprinted in, uh, in one in one sprint without taking a breath from 1811 mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. to about 1935, paused, and then ran up to uh, over, tw- over 2100. So, ni- so 1935 to 1950 is where there are very important price and moving averages supports, as well as what I call a retracement uh, as well. And one of the important retracements I use is a five-eighths retracement. So if you think about the move from 1811 to 2135, you take uh, about five-eighths of that, and that comes in also right around that 1935 level. So as long as gold can hold around 1950 or so, it can begin a period of backing and filling and uh, trade in the upper part of what's been a huge uh, $500 range in uh, in gold for the last for the last three years, where it uh, it, it always ran into wall, a wall at 2050 and support was in the low 1600s. Mm-hmm. So if we can get gold to exceed uh, last week's high, so basically if we can get gold over 2150, which is going to take work and going to take time and going to take a little more weakness in the dollar. But if that could happen above 2150, my work would project a move up to 3,600 and maybe as high as 4,000. But on the downside, if we go below 1925, then it's going to then it's going to project either more downside risk to 1800, or it's just going to take a lot longer for the retrenchment and basing to uh, to continue. But beyond gold, the, the other commodity that I'm watching, and this ties in with you know what Al was saying about about deer are soybeans. And of all the of all the commodities and certainly of all the grains, soybeans have potentially uh, the most uh, the most upside potential, but it's still years away. But that's that's one that uh, is the strongest of all of all the grains. And uh, it's certainly one that uh, that could be quite um, vulnerable to uh, to weather, not just here, but I guess we in Brazil account for about two thirds of the world's production of, of soybeans. But what's what's amazing to me about soybeans is you have it, it broke out of this gigantic 35 year base between roughly four and twelve dollar beans, and then it ran up to about eighteen dollars uh, ten years ago. And since since 2008, it's basically traded between eight and and almost $18. But within that eight and $18 box, if you will, it's it's tightened up that trading range now to trading between roughly 12 and $18. So we are on the lower end of the range. But if we could ever get above $18, which I think will you know could happen late next year. We could very easily see twenty-five dollar beans, and uh, and I. But that's that's looking way out towards the end of the decade. But but that's the only other commodity that I can see that has potentially really big upside potential. But for now, I think both soybeans and gold have a lot of work to do. But but uh, but I think that soybeans are are clearly the other commodity to watch for the future. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for that. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I know there were a lot more readers' questions, and sorry we didn't get to them. Um, and in Al, thank you for being here. Please join us again tomorrow.
Lauren. My colleague, Lauren Foster, Barron Senior Writer, will speak with Mark Wilson, a certified financial planner and president of Mile Wealth Management, about what to do with doghouse mutual funds, some with estimated distributions of up 20% of NAV and other topics that are top of mind this time of year. Thank you for listening. Stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.